Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and here is Matthew Stockton. Hello. How are you, Matthew Stockton, this fine, lovely, summery day? Calm now, after being cut off by somebody on the street in my rental car. Oh, no. When did drivers become bad? Um, when were cars invented? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I may have flipped the bird. You may have. Yeah. I always just wave because uh, what they don't know is it's a bouquet of the bird. <laughs> anyway. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. August 15, 2009, the mutilated body of Jasmine Fiore, a 28-year-old Playboy model turned real estate agent, was found stuffed into a suitcase and discarded in a dumpster in Buena Park, California. The investigation quickly led to her husband, Ryan Jenkins, a Canadian real estate investor and former contestant on the TV show Megan Wants a Millionaire. As the investigation progressed, a disturbing picture of domestic violence and jealousy emerged. It was revealed that Jenkins had a history of abusive behavior toward Jasmine and at least one other woman, and that Jasmine and he had had a tumultuous but short relationship. The motive for the murder appeared to be jealousy and control. Ryan Jenkins fled to Canada, and an international manhunt was launched to apprehend him. However, on August 23, 2019, Jenkins was found dead in a Hope British Columbia motel room. He had completed suicide by hanging himself. This case generated widespread media coverage and sparked discussions about domestic violence, the dark side of reality TV, and the importance of raising awareness about toxic relationships. 
the tragic death of Jasmine Fiore served as a grim reminder of the dangers of domestic violence and the need for intervention and support for victims. This is Dark Poutine, episode 273, Bitter Reality, The Murder of Jasmine Fiore. Reality TV experienced a surge in popularity in the late 2000s. Several factors contributed to its rise, including the novelty of unscripted, authentic content, the emotional engagement and human interest it provided, and the voyeuristic appeal of observing real-life situations. Reality TV benefited from the social experimentation, from social experimentation, audience participation, lower production costs, and flexible scheduling. VH1, in particular, played a significant role in the reality TV boom with its celebrity programming. And I say celebrity in quotes because some of those people I'd never heard of. Featuring shows like Flavor of Love, starring public enemies Flava Flav, and subsequent others in the reality TV, dating TV show genre. So while working in the film business, I worked as security at a studio in Maple Ridge where Flavor of Love was in pre-production. Sadly, I didn't get to meet Mr. Flav, so I cannot tell you whether the giant clock he wore around his neck kept accurate time. Well, you know. (laughs) Anyway, I hate reality TV. Oh, don't get me started. Well, we're going to talk about it a lot. You are going to get me started. (laughs) This is the whole point. The writer's strike of 2007-2008 in the United States significantly impacted the rise of reality TV's popularity. The strike, led by the Writers Guild of America, WGA, just like the one you're hearing about now, lasted for 100 days and halted the production of many scripted television shows and movies. As a result, TV networks faced a shortage of new content and had to find alternative programming to fill their schedules. Reality TV became a network go-to choice during the writer's strike because it required fewer writers and had lower production costs than normally scripted shows. Using reality TV, production could continue and provide fresh content to the viewers while scripted programming was on hold. This led to an increased reliance on reality TV during that strike. The absence of scripted shows allowed reality TV to gain more airtime and capture a larger audience. Viewers accustomed to scripted programming had to turn to reality TV as an alternative source of entertainment. The strike allowed reality TV to flourish and solidify its position as a popular genre. Furthermore, the prolonged absence of new scripted content during the strike led to some viewers discovering and becoming invested in reality TV shows for the first time. This exposure and engagement with reality TV during the strike period contributed to its long-term popularity as viewers developed a taste for the genre. Uh, that's a fascinating history behind the, the, the quick rise of reality TV. Mm-hmm. Out of necessity, right? In terms of filling the airtime. Yes, exactly. Right? Necessity yeah. to fill the airtime. It didn't actually need to happen. They could have just played reruns the whole time. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of reality TV. I'm, I'm, remember when Big Brother first came out in the UK? Yes. So that, was, that originally started in Holland. Yeah. And I watched one season of it. And I found it interesting because it felt like a social experiment. It was before they started chucking in, from what I understand, because I haven't watched reality TV since, sort of celebrities and everything else and it was just sort of um 
the first version of it. Yeah. And it felt like a social experiment to me, but I never watched it after yeah. that. Yeah. So with reality TV booming and with more and more viewers tuning in to watch, VH1 producers were looking for content. Much came from spinoffs, utilizing familiar, often controversial faces introduced to viewers in the previous series. They saw an opportunity with Megan Hauserman. And Megan rose to fame as a contestant on the second season of Rock of Love with Brett Michaels. He was the lead singer of Poison. Known for her blonde bombshell image and outspoken personality, Hauserman, a playboy cyber girl, became a memorable figure on that program. The show created for her was called Megan Wants a Millionaire. Ugh. The premise of Megan Wants a Millionaire revolved around Megan's pursuit of finding a romantic partner who was financially successful and deemed a millionaire, and that's in quotes. The show featured a group of male contestants competing for Megan's affection and the opportunity to become her partner. The contestants on the show were wealthy individuals or aspiring millionaires who showcased their riches and lifestyle in an attempt to impress Megan. They participated in various challenges and dates throughout the series to win her attention and demonstrate their compatibility. The show blended elements of a dating competition and reality TV drama aiming to capitalize on the fascination with wealth, luxury, and extravagant lifestyles. The format included eliminations, where Megan would choose who to keep and who to send home based on her connection and compatibility with the contestants. That sounds vile. It does. It's not something that I really enjoy. I think I can honestly say, and I usually don't do this, Mm -hmm. because I've never seen it. Right. I don't like any of those people. (laughs) I I can tell I don't. Okay. Like, to go on a show like that, ugh. Yeah. It kind of sounds misogynistic and kind of a bit exploitative. Sure. Like, I'm going to marry for money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Probably, I'd assume it got good ratings. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, one fan can, uh, millions of fans can be as wrong as one, in my opinion. Well, the show didn't complete, and we'll see why. Okay. Yeah. Among the 17 men who claimed net worths exceeding $1 million was a Canadian named Ryan Jenkins, and he competed for Hauserman's affections to make her a willing trophy wife. Ryan Alexander Jenkins was born on February 8, 1977 in Victoria, B.C., The family soon moved to Calgary, where Dan Jenkins, Ryan's father, opened his own successful architectural firm in 1981. According to the Calgary Herald's David Parker in a 2017 article, Dan Jenkins was responsible for, quote, designing some dramatic buildings that earned him the title King of Kensington. Cafe Calabash Restaurant was the first before he completed a 10,000-square-foot retail complex in Kensington Crescent. The project was followed by the Point Retail and Office Building, which remains a landmark flat-iron structure in the area. And for many years, Jenkins Architecture was housed in the Beltline District, but has since relocated across the river to Bridgeland, across from the Piazza, the mixed-use building he designed on the former General Hospital site. End quote. There will only be one King of Kensington for me. Okay. Al Waxman. Of course. I. Didn't. Now that is good TV. And that's why I left in the King of Kensington quote, because I knew you would get it. Uh, Al Waxman. Yeah. I did missed, you watch that show? I that did. Of course I did. Yeah. Yeah. After high school, Ryan Jenkins pursued a comprehensive education in aviation and business at Mount Royal College in the city. 
Building upon his knowledge and skills, he dedicated himself to designing and developing environmentally conscious condominium projects with his dad. Additionally, Jenkins imparted his expertise by providing flying lessons at the Calgary International Airport. Considering his dad's success as an architect and developer in the real estate business, it was not surprising that Ryan became involved in that lucrative family business. Ryan's sights became set on Hollywood, and after learning of the casting for Megan Wants a Millionaire, he began the application process and was accepted. Megan liked Ryan right away. In the first episode of the reality show, she was pleased to see Ryan dressed in a purple shirt that matched her outfit and her little dog's collar. Ryan, whose nickname on the show was Smooth Operator, began romancing Megan away from the cameras, telling her in love notes that he was falling for her and believed that they were soulmates. Megan did note that as part of the show, she had to kiss all the guys and Ryan had shown a jealous streak. Ryan told her he had difficulty watching her kiss the other contestants. At the time, Megan assumed the jealousy was innocent, but she didn't know that Ryan had a past arrest and conviction for domestic violence that had slipped by the show's background check. More on that later. As the show progressed, Megan felt Ryan would be the winner. She was into him too. However, when the show's producers got wind of the budding romance and Megan's thoughts on who the winner should be, they disagreed. Ryan was not in their plans to be the winner. Megan was told that business was business and that Ryan would be cut, making him the third place contestant. Megan was not to let Ryan know until the actual taping of the show, which is where he learned that he was getting the chop. Ryan was devastated, but was still sending Megan messages professing his love to her even after he rapped. Only days after sending Megan more love notes, Ryan met Playboy model Jasmine Fiore in a Las Vegas casino at an event sponsored by Hawaiian Tropics on March 16th, 2009. Ah, she was what we call the Hawaiian Tropic girl. Okay, yeah. And that's what they were called in the 80s and early 90s. So you did some work for Hawaiian Tropics. I was a kid. I was like 19 years old. Sure. In my first ad agency, and we were, we were at the ad agency I was at was responsible for the Hawaiian Tropic advertising in Canada. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So... Just a, you were just a wee little boy. 19. 19. What was 19-year-old Matthew like? Astute. Astute? Yes. Oh, you, were you a serious 19-year-old? Astute and trying to climb that ladder. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Jasmine Fiore, originally known as Jasmine Lepore, spent her formative years in Santa Cruz, California. Her parents divorced when she was eight. Jasmine's teenage years were spent going to school, hanging out with friends, and crewing on a sailboat belonging to an ex-boyfriend's dad. She also worked the checkout at a store called Shopper's Corner. She sometimes played football with the boys and loved riding motorcycles. After completing high school at Santa Cruz High and attending ARC Independent Studies, she left Santa Cruz. A close friend, Larry Azzaro, whom she affectionately called Uncle Larry, described her initial apprehension about moving to the big city. Despite initial reservations, Jasmine found success in her modeling endeavors. She secured various jobs in Las Vegas where she posed for restaurant advertisements and made a name for herself as a swimsuit and fashion model. Her talent and dedication allowed her to thrive in the competitive industry. Jasmine was blonde, blue-eyed, 5 foot 7 inches tall, and 120 pounds. She worked out regularly and was in great shape. She'd had breast implants to enhance her physique. She wasn't just a pretty face, though. 
Jasmine was smart and also loved the business of show. She was proud to be the trusted coordinator for Playboy's Girls of Golf, and she resided in Las Vegas for several years where she pursued her career and immersed herself in the city's vibrant atmosphere. She was working to escape the modeling world altogether. In the last years of her life, she'd obtained a real estate license and wanted to open a fitness center with a friend. You talked a lot about this Megan person mm-hmm. at the beginning, and when I was uh, reading and doing a bit of research, um, she comes up a lot Yeah, in this story. Of course she does, even yeah. Even though she wasn't the person that was murdered. She was, she was connected to Ryan. So, yeah, yeah, and I kind of feel like... Um, it's leveraged for her a little bit in terms of basking in the light of the story and that Jasmine sometimes is left behind in in the media. Yeah, I, I feel that Jasmine's story becomes weirdly secondary in this yeah. some at some points. And I'm not saying Megan is doing that herself. No, it's just it's sort of the media is focused on Yeah. You know, and she's a reality person, right? So the attention she'll take and the media is giving it to her right right yeah and i think there's a big difference in someone like jasmine though yeah i think it's important to say you know you sure she had implants right yeah she looked kind of like a barbie doll yep but to me it seems like she understood a few things okay the first is she was smart enough to know that she wasn't a supermodel and this wasn't going to last forever right yeah right and um you know, I, I've worked in advertising for like 30 years, sure. right? So I've worked with a lot of models mm-hmm. and models who are trying to become actors and stuff sure. like that. Because advertising is often a stepping stone. Yeah, it's it's a it's a way in. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, podcasting for me is a way into the entertainment industry. You know, you, you have a reel, yep, right? Exactly. Um, some of the models I worked with were, I think, you know, all good people, but sometimes a little bit delusional about their ability to do it long term. Sure. Uh, but others had just clearly had a head on their shoulders. Right. They they were having a good time. You know, they were young, they were pretty or handsome if it was a guy, right? Yeah. And they understood that it was a for now job, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, I've worked with models that were like in the middle of the, their MBA or taking acting classes. Right. And so that's kind of what Jasmine was and that's, up to. And that's what I'm saying. She kind of... Um, she wasn't in this reality TV stuff, mm-hmm. right? She was, she was working, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, she, she wasn't some dumb blonde that no. so many people often wrongly equate. You know, if you see a young woman, you know, with blonde hair and fake boobs, right? They get this instant sort of dumb blonde sort of mark beside them. Yeah. And, you know, be, being blonde and pretty and having implants does not imply an IQ. Yeah. Right? And, and I think it's important to say that about her. Jasmine was pretty and had had many boyfriends, many of whom she stayed friendly with even after they'd broken up. According to an article in the Santa Cruz Sentinel, quote, Everett Pope, 28, said that he dated her for about eight months in 2006 after meeting her in Las Vegas. They remained friends, he said. Fiore was working as a fashion model when they met, he said, and had a shot at being a Playboy model, but that didn't materialize. Pope, who owns a Modesto restaurant and nightclub, called Fiore one of the most genuine people he has ever met. She was just a real sweetheart, he said. Some of what has been said about her to date has been disheartening. People here model and cast their own opinions, I guess, but they are not remotely close to the actual facts. She lived a life most people can only dream of, the glitz and glamour bit, but that wasn't necessarily her. 
She was more like a homebody, a family person. She loved riding horses. Pope was considering opening a mortgage business in Las Vegas in 2006, and Fiore was supportive and eager to help, he said. She had a desire to be wealthy, he said. And while modeling was easy for her, she knew she wouldn't get independently wealthy that way. She would never marry anyone just because they were wealthy. If Fiore had a dream, she shared with Pope, it was to be a great wife and mother, he said. I know she would have treated this guy like a king, and I just don't understand how this could have happened, Pope said. When Jasmine entered her contact number into Ryan Jenkins' phone on the night they met, she included her birthday. Ryan was surprised they shared almost the same birthday in February. Ryan was born on the 8th, and Jasmine was born on the 18th. According to some, they thought it was fate for them to be together forever from that point. And two days later, on March 18, 2009, they were married at the Little White Wedding Chapel in Las Vegas. Friends were surprised Jasmine was getting married quickly, especially to a guy she barely knew. Perhaps it was more of a business deal for both of them. Two heads are better than one. According to the documentary series The Playboy Murders, it quickly became clear that Ryan Jenkins did not have the money he claimed. The family's money belonged solely to Ryan's father. According to the series, this immediately created friction between Ryan and Jasmine. He allegedly told her that he was having trouble accessing his money because it was in Canada. And the series also claimed that Ryan was using Jasmine's money, which she resented. I mean, she worked hard for that. Oh, he's, uh, he's one of these scammer types. Anyone out there who's dating someone who's going, oh, I don't have access to my money. Yeah. You know what? There's things called ATMs. Yeah, this is and amazing. It, and, and it's actually not that hard. They do work. <laughs> right? Yeah. God. In a People magazine article, Jasmine Fiore's mother shared her thoughts on Ryan Jenkins' motives for being with Jasmine. Quote, Lisa Lepore, a ceramic artist, believes Jenkins was attracted to the rewards of Jasmine's hard work. He was desperate to glom onto my daughter because everything my daughter had was for real. She earned her car, she earned her penthouse apartment, says Lepore, who lives in Maui. Everybody loves this girl, whether they were movie stars or producers or the garbage collectors at the apartment complex. End quote. While a few thought the couple was in love, some friends knew the union was odd. Behind closed doors, to certain confidants, they complained about each other extensively. Some believe they didn't really like each other at all. Only weeks after the marriage, Jasmine told her pals that things were sometimes rough with Ryan. He'd get angry and jealous. Jasmine's friends realized how serious things were when on April 22nd, only five weeks after they'd gotten married, Jasmine accused Ryan Jenkins of allegedly assaulting her by striking her in the arm with his fist and pushing her into a swimming pool. As a result, Jenkins faced charges of battery constituting domestic violence, and a court date was set for later in the year. I've been one of those friends yeah. um, where uh, I had a friend call me and say that her boyfriend had hit her, beat her up a few times. Yeah. But he was drunk. Sure. Right? Um, so, yeah. And my, my advice to her mm -hmm. was, doesn't matter. Yeah. Get out. Mm -hmm. leave and luckily this this woman had she had the financial ability to do it right there's a lot that goes on in somebody's head who who's in a domestic abuse situation sure in terms of hey i can i can make it better well um, there's there's also trauma bonds you trauma know trauma bonds and and also but after all this happened my friend called me she's like 
I was so embarrassed about this situation. She's like, I'm a, like she's, she was, she's a wealthy, educated, mm -hmm. strong woman. Right. Right. Yep. And, and she's like, my God, where was I? And I said, well, I hope I was a bit of help by just saying, just leave. Right. Yeah. It's tough. Ryan was also still talking with Megan Hauserman, telling her that Jasmine was ruining his life, but he'd become obsessed with keeping Jasmine with him at all costs. He would say things like, quote, I love Jasmine very much, and she doesn't want to be with me. Ryan was not the type of guy who took rejection well. Megan Hauserman convinced Ryan to be on season three of another VH1 show called I Love Money. When Jasmine learned Ryan was still talking to Megan, among all the other problems, they had a blowout argument. According to Jasmine's friends, Jasmine was pretty much done with Ryan Jenkins when he went off to Mexico to shoot I Love Money. The filming was scheduled to conclude in early August. Ryan told people on the show he wanted to win the cash prize of $250,000 as he thought it would help him to win Jasmine back. Jasmine's mother, Lisa Lapore, later said that at that point, unknown to Ryan, her daughter was working on a marriage annulment and to start fresh, she had dyed her hair brunette. While Jenkins was away, Jasmine Fiore reconnected with her former boyfriend, Robert Hasman, and the two began exchanging text messages. In July, when Jenkins was still in Mexico, Fiore and Hasman embarked on a trip together to Los Cabos, Mexico, using the aliases Hans and Ginger to conceal their identities. A video shared later captured a relaxed Hasman by the poolside while Jasmine Fiore played in the pool itself. Even after Jenkins returned from Mexico in early August, the texting between Jasmine and Hasman persisted, reportedly causing feelings of upset and jealousy in Jenkins, who found out. Ryan desperately wanted to patch things up, but Jasmine's continued friendships with ex-boyfriends and other men drove him to distraction. Publicly, however, things appeared to be going well for the couple. On August 9th, a video uploaded by Jenkins on his MySpace page captured a couple seemingly immersed in the joy of newlywed bliss. In the footage, a bikini-clad Jasmine indulges in a seductive dance, holding a drink, while Ryan affectionately comments from behind the camera, Damn, I love my life, and I love my wife. One of Jasmine's exes, particularly threatening to Ryan, was her former husband, Michael Cardozi. She'd been married to Cardozi for three years, and they divorced in 2006. Cardozi had been in jail on drug charges, but he and Jasmine remained in contact throughout. On August 11th, Jasmine visited the prison to pick up Cardozi, who was being released on that day. On August 13th, Ryan and Jasmine arrived at the Loberge Resort and Spa in Del Mar, California. They attended a charity event organized by the Karma Foundation, a charitable organization focused on aiding women and children in Haiti. Following the event, the couple was spotted getting into Jasmine's white Mercedes at around 2.30 a.m., having attended a gathering at the rooftop bar of the Ivy Hotel. Later, at approximately 4.30 a.m., Ryan was observed entering the Loberge Hotel on his own. The following morning, at around 9.20 a.m., Jenkins checked out of the Loberge, once again unaccompanied. Jasmine was never seen again after leaving the Hilton, but Jenkins was spotted on video at his home in Los Angeles in the late afternoon of August 14th. At 7 a.m. on August 15, 2009, Ryan Jenkins contacted the authorities to report Jasmine Fiore missing. According to his account, 
Jenkins stated that his wife had dropped him off at their apartment after returning from San Diego the previous day. He claimed that she had left to run errands, but had not returned since. Ryan said he was worried about Jasmine. More after a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far on this episode? We see these guys time and time again, Mm. right? And when we go through an episode like this, you kind of... You're looking back at history, but you want to you want to yell at the victim. Yeah, know, escape. Yeah, run away. Right. It's yeah. it's it's hard. And uh, this woman, she's making something of herself, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this sort of scammer guy who couldn't take rejection and who was like up to his eyeballs in debt and living off of her took her life. Yeah, a part of it too was he may have realized that she realized she didn't need him. Yeah, you know, like. Okay, well, I don't need you. And they say that's the most dangerous point in time for a victim of domestic abuse. Is when they're leaving. leaving. Yeah. And the last thing a narcissist wants to hear is, I don't need you. On the same morning Ryan Jenkins had reported Jasmine Fiore missing, a man collecting cans and bottles discovered an unzipped, gray rolling suitcase in a Buena Park dumpster. The man opened the suitcase and was shocked to find a body inside. The body was positioned in the suitcase so he could not see its face. It was naked. He believed it to be that of a child. The shocked man ran to call the police. Investigators determined that the body was that of a woman. She'd been badly beaten. Her nose was broken. But it was the mutilation done to her body that had been the most shocking. Presumably to hinder her identification, the woman's fingertips had been cut off and all her teeth had been removed, most likely with a wrench. Initially, police wondered if the woman had been murdered in some sort of gang-related way or perhaps there was a serial killer in the area. On the morning of August 16th, Ryan Jenkins was captured on surveillance cameras leaving their penthouse. Investigators later discovered that he left Los Angeles and traveled to Nevada in his BMW X5 to retrieve the speedboat he'd named Night Ride Her. When authorities contacted Ryan by phone on August 17th, he informed them that he was in Utah and claimed to be en route to Canada to address immigration issues. Obviously, cops thought Ryan's timing was odd, his wife was missing, and this did not seem like an appropriate time to leave the country for any reason. On August 18th, the remains were identified as Jasmine Fiore in a rather unique way. The investigators used the serial number from her breast implants matched against her medical records. Although the implant company had used serial numbers to identify products in case of defects and a need for recall, they proved extremely useful forensically. 
The Orange County Coroner's Office reported that Jasmine Fiore had been strangled to death just a few hours before her body was found. Inside Jasmine's body, investigators discovered DNA. A database search indicated it belonged to Jasmine's ex-husband, Michael Cardozi. However, on the day Jasmine's body was discovered, Cardozi was arrested for violating his parole, leading them to search his apartment. The Buena Park Police disclosed that they found letters exchanged between Fiore and Cardozi indicating an intimate relationship between them that had been ongoing during his incarceration and Jasmine's marriage to Ryan Jenkins. Police questioned Cardozi, but at the time Jasmine was killed, he'd been wearing an ankle monitor as part of his release. It would have been impossible for him to have been anywhere near where her body was discovered. According to Cardozi's mother, he was devastated after hearing of Jasmine's death. She said he told her, Mom, she was the love of my life. We were soulmates. End quote. Wow. Imagine how easily this could have been pinned on him if, if he didn't have that circumstance of having an ankle monitor on. Yeah. Yeah. Right? He, the other guy could have gotten away with this because he was in jail, right? Mm -hmm. And he had love letters and there was DNA in her body. Yeah, the evidence don't lie. That's what people would wow. say. Yeah. Police looked deeper into Ryan Jenkins' background and found he'd had a previous domestic assault conviction in 2007 against a former girlfriend, after which he was sentenced to 15 months of probation and required to attend a program for sexual addiction. There were conflicting reports about Ryan, though. In an interview with the Canadian network CTV, Paulina Chimaleka stated that throughout her entire two-and-a-half-year engagement with Ryan, she had never witnessed any signs of violence from him. Megan Hauserman later said she had no idea about Ryan's previous arrest and he'd not have been asked to participate on the show had the producers been made aware of it. The company responsible for the background check on Ryan Jenkins was later successfully sued. Jasmine's cell phone was missing. Regardless, investigators learned that she'd been texting her former boyfriend, Robert Hasman, numerous times Thursday night and early Friday morning, saying she wanted to travel to Las Vegas to see him. The evening after Jasmine's body had been discovered, Hasman got one last text from Jasmine's number, which said, suck it. Oh, so this text was after the fact. This was after the fact. Ah, that's even more evil. <laughs> Right? right? Yeah. Like... Horrible. Right. So, whoever had her phone afterward, what would be the motive to send the words, suck it, to wow. somebody? Yeah. Wow. On August 19th, Ryan received a call from his father, allegedly informing him of Jasmine's murder, which had been confirmed on August 18th. And following this, the Whatcom County Sheriff's Department received a witness report stating that Ryan's black BMW SUV was seen towing a boat on the highway toward the Canada-U.S. border. Police subsequently discovered the vehicle with an empty boat trailer at a marina in Blaine, Washington, the engine still warm. Blaine is the truck crossing that I go through. Uh, uh. Ryan became the primary person of interest in the investigation at that time. While he had not been formally charged, Canadian authorities were notified to be on the lookout for him. The U.S. Coast Guard and U.S. Customs and Border Protection deployed boats to patrol the waters off northwest Washington, actively searching for Ryan as early as August 19th. And it's believed that he crossed into Canada sometime between the 19th and the 20th. And it's believed that he came to Point Roberts mm. in Tawasson. So Yeah, so Point Roberts is this 
It's a peninsula yeah. uh, that oddly, it's like about four square miles, but the, the Canadian-U.S. border goes right through like at the edge of Tawasson. Yeah. So the, the only way to get there by land is through Canada or by water. Exactly. Yeah. And you can actually, um, while there's a, a border security patrol, yeah. if you go like down the road about 300 meters, yeah. there's like just kind of like a speed bump in a neighborhood where you can just walk across. It. Yeah. Like there's a house there. That's it. Yep. On August 20th, an arrest warrant was issued for Ryan Jenkins in connection with Jasmine Fiore's murder. The murder complaint read, count one, on or about August 14th, 2019, in violation of section 187A of the penal code, murder, a felony, Ryan Alexander Jenkins did unlawfully and with malice aforethought kill Jasmine Fiore, a human being, end quote. Tell me about that uh, comma, a human being at the end. Uh, so that is something that is always written into a murder complaint in California. As we've talked about before, it gives more impact. Yeah. He didn't kill an animal. He didn't chop down a tree. Yeah. He is accused of killing a human being. Right. And and I can imagine that, you know, this is not the case with Jasmine, but if somebody murdered somebody else who is maybe even a horrible person... Right? The comma, a human being, is still hugely important. Right. Right? There, it is always a human being. Right. Right. Okay. Murder is always involves a human being. I just find it, it really interesting that somebody at one point in history went, let's put comma, a human being. There. We, we need to do that. Yeah. yeah. The bail recommendation was set at $10 million. There was also a demand that Ryan Jenkins provide DNA samples and thumb and palm prints. But as we know... Ryan was already in the wind. A wanted poster offering $25,000 for information on his whereabouts gave Ryan Jenkins particulars and said he was, quote, armed and dangerous. On August 20th, at around 6 p.m., Ryan arrived in the silver PT Cruiser with Alberta license plates at the Thunderbird Motel in Hope, British Columbia. Accompanying him was a young blonde woman who paid cash for a three-night stay. Instead of parking near the rooms, they parked beside a dumpster, which struck the manager as unusual. While the woman came in to rent the room, Ryan had stayed in the car, also unusual. The hotel manager described the woman as attractive, approximately 25 to 30 years old, tall and notably composed. A guest in the neighboring room reported that the woman departed the motel after around only 20 minutes. Ryan had gone inside. Several sources later revealed that the woman was allegedly Elena Jenkins, Ryan's half-sister, but this has never been verified by police. The manager also recollected seeing Ryan on August 21st engaged in a phone conversation outside the motel. He appeared fatigued and was not easily recognizable from his televised image. On August 23rd at 11.30 a.m., Ryan failed to check out of the motel. Concerned, at around 2.30 p.m., the motel's manager decided to inspect the room. Using his key, he entered. Inside, he discovered Ryan Jenkins' lifeless body hanging from a clothes rack, suspended by a belt. Ryan's dad issued a statement. He'd flown back from Honduras, where he'd been developing a resort. Quote, On Wednesday morning, I heard the awful news that Jasmine had been found murdered. I started trying to reach Ryan. I got a call from Ryan that afternoon from Birch Bay. That's in Washington. I told him that I had heard that Jasmine had been found murdered. He was in shock and broke down crying. 
I assume he panicked and thinking he might be a suspect, he jumped in his boat and drove it to Point Roberts so he could reach Vancouver, where much of his family lived. I caught a plane to Vancouver the next morning and was detained at the airport. The authorities said they wanted to find Ryan for illegal entry into Canada. While I was in line at customs, he called me, but I was told to hang up the phone. Cell phones were not allowed. Tragically, that was the last time I heard my son's voice. End quote. In a statement of the Calgary Herald, a spokesman from the California District Attorney's Office overseeing the investigation expressed regret over Jenkins' death. They acknowledged the unfortunate circumstances, emphasizing the impact on Jasmine's family, who not only suffered the loss of their loved one, but also missed the opportunity for justice to be served in court. On the other hand, Jenkins' mother, Nata Jenkins, shared her unwavering belief in her son's innocence with the newspaper. She said, quote, I think he panicked, my little boy, and we had to protect him, even now that he's dead. End quote. Dan Jenkins said to the LA Times that he believed Hollywood had corrupted Ryan. He said, quote, If my son was guilty, he was crazy. He was not the boy we knew. The boy we knew was not capable of anything remotely close to this act. You talk to everyone here who knew him before he went down there, and they'll talk about a wonderful young man, a thoughtful man, end quote. I can understand parents not wanting to believe that their child could be a murderer. Right, yeah. And of course it would be a horrible thing to deal with. Yes. I can't imagine how difficult it is to accept that the child you raised to be a good person may or may not be guilty of killing another human yeah, being. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine trying to get there in your heart and in your head. Mm. Jasmine's white Mercedes was discovered abandoned in a parking lot in West Hollywood, approximately a mile from the penthouse where she lived with Ryan. Disturbingly, the interior of the car was coated in blood. Buena Park Police Sergeant Roger Powell stated that a notable amount of blood was present, suggesting that a violent struggle had occurred within the vehicle. The blood was found in the passenger seat, back seat, and rear windshield, indicating that attempts had been made to clean it up. The car's exterior was dirty and appeared to have been driven off-road at some point. There was a note on the windshield that read, This is a private lot. Unattended vehicles will be towed at the owner's expense. End quote. Well, I guess the person who stuck that note on the windscreen didn't look inside. Right. Probably not. Yeah, just sort of, uh, you know, write oh, something. that car is still here. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yep. Investigators believe that Ryan assaulted Jasmine in the vehicle near Corona, 96 miles north of San Diego, between the hours of 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. A witness later came forward claiming to have seen Ryan in Brenna Park near the area where Jasmine's body was dumped. A bladed, sharp instrument was used to cut her fingertips off, which was done post-mortem. Fragments of Jasmine's teeth were discovered in the suitcase where her body had been discovered. In late September, Jasmine Fiore's close friends and family held a private and emotional funeral for her. Over 200 people gathered at Jasmine's home in Santa Cruz. Jasmine's mother and Jasmine's ex-boyfriend, Robert Hasman, tearfully read poems and told heartfelt stories about Jasmine. On October 1st, 2009, about 300 people attended a by-invitation-only memorial service for Ryan Jenkins to celebrate his life at the First Assembly Church on Elbow Drive in Calgary. A gaggle of media, not invited to attend the service, stood on the sidewalk outside the church. Some individuals passing by took the opportunity to reprimand them, expressing their disapproval and shaming them for not respecting the family's feelings. 
Although, according to police, Ryan Jenkins was allegedly the person responsible for Jasmine's murder, his family still needed to grieve their son. It was revealed that Ryan Jenkins had been in financial trouble as well. Days before his death, BMW had sued him for over $12,000. Ryan had leased a 2007 BMW 335XI but stopped making payments on it in March of 2009. The vehicle was returned to BMW, but Ryan still needed to pay $12,750.76 for the lease plus interest. The Buena Park Police Department found what they considered to be a, quote, suicide note on Ryan Jenkins' computer. The page-and-a-half-long letter, written on August 20, 2009, was titled, Last Will and Testament, three days before he was found dead at the Thunderbird Motel. Police said, quote, about half the letter described how much he loved Jasmine, and in the same breath, he would talk about how frustrated she made him and that he felt very jealous about some of her relationships and that frustrated him immensely. There were some negative feelings about alleged infidelity. He did not acknowledge or take responsibility for the murder, but he did apologize to his family for all the negative attention that this case was generating. End quote. On October 8, 2009, Doug McIntyre of Sun Media reported that Dan Jenkins would review the letter written by his son. It is not clear what Mr. Jenkins read in that note. It has never been made public. I tried through Freedom of Information to get a copy, but the RCMP refused to release it. In a morbid turn of events, the coat rack from the room at the Thunderbird Motel where Jenkins tragically hanged himself was eventually removed. The decision came after the room's new occupant expressed discomfort and sleeplessness due to the presence of the coat rack. The motel manager, having received the request, gave the coat rack to his friend. This friend saw it as a perfect decoration for his Halloween party. Party attendees were fascinated and took photos with the coat rack, some with friends posed in front of the macabre item. In one photo... The rack is displayed behind a scantily clad woman in a devil's costume, grinning innocently, red horns on her head. A blue leaf-shaped air freshener hangs on one end of the coat rack, an off-color joke. On the wall behind is a large yellow cardboard sign. Written on the sign in large black block letters, dripping bright red blood for effect, is Official, Ryan Jenkins' last stop. In the middle is a photo of Ryan Jenkins, bookended on both sides with the sentiment R.I.P., which is crossed out. In May 2011, the coat rack appeared on an auction website known for selling murder memorabilia. The final posted price was $3,500 U.S., but the seller claims to be, quote, open to offers. It was sold by June, but it is unclear how much the buyer paid as that went undisclosed. All I have to say here is shame on them. That's yeah. horrible. It's awful. A man died. Right. Right? Like, you know, there wasn't a court, um, et cetera. I think the assumption, general assumption is he did it. Doesn't matter. A human being died. Again, a human a being. A human being died, and they're making money and a joke out of it at a Halloween party. Yeah, I don't like it myself. I, I think, you know. It's gross. I mean, if you're buying something from, like, 400 years ago, right? It's, but it's like when relatives are alive and all that sort of stuff, it's like, come on, guys, have a little bit of taste and courtesy and mm -hmm. all of that, right? As mentioned, the company that had dropped the ball on Ryan Jenkins' background check was successfully sued. VH1 had enlisted the services of Collective Intelligence, 
a private investigation firm to conduct background checks on potential contestants for their shows. However, Collective Intelligence's scope was limited to performing background checks within the U.S. As a result, the vetting of Ryan Jenkins, a Canadian citizen, was outsourced to a Canadian firm called Straight Line International. In 2009, Collective Intelligence filed a lawsuit against Straight Line, accusing them of breaching their contract. The lawsuit claimed that Straight Line had provided false information to Collective Intelligence by stating that Ryan had a clean record and had neglected to check his background against the RCMP criminal database. The damage caused to Collective Intelligence's reputation resulted in the loss of significant business opportunities from Viacom, the owner of VH1, NBC, and ABC, according to their claims. In July 2011, Collective Intelligence emerged victorious in its lawsuit against Straight Line, the Canadian company, securing a favorable outcome. Wow, just because we're supposedly nice up here, ensure you do your proper background checks, Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes our poutine is dark. Sometimes it is. And that's it for Dark Poutine, episode 273, Bitter Reality, The Murder of Jasmine Fiore. Poor Jasmine. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Well, let's listen to our first voicemail. Uh, I wonder who called us. Let's have a listen. Hi, Mike and Matthew. Uh, my name is Janice. I'm calling from Moncton, New Brunswick today. Uh, more specifically, traveling through Nova Scotia back home uh, to London, New Brunswick. I'm on Bluetooth. No need to worry. Everyone is safe. Um, as I listen to your podcast, I just wanted to say thank you for all that you guys do. Um, what really prompted me to call, and I've been a listener now for a couple of years, is actually a more recent episode you did uh, based out of Oramusto, New Brunswick. I very much enjoy listening to podcasts that uh, are local to where I live. And of course, you've done a few, Mike. So thank you for that. Um, what really resonated with me on this podcast is I actually had gone to visit my sister and her husband, who actually live in Oramusto. Uh, he, of course, is part of the military. Um, so the timing of that, that episode couldn't have been better. I learned so much about the history of where I had just visited. And that, to me, is, is just priceless on top of getting to constantly listen to um, the true crime podcasting world. So I just want to thank you guys for everything you do. Uh, it's a joy to listen to you guys every single week. Um, and I look forward to hearing more uh, local and not so local uh, stories that you guys will bring. So thanks so much and go take a shit in your hat. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I realized recently I haven't done a lot of stories there uh, that take place in New Brunswick specifically. Um, it's like... I was wondering why that is like, okay, there's lots of cases in BC, lots of cases in Ontario, some in Alberta. And then I realized, well, that's because there's a lot more people in those places. So, so there's more stuff going on. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't go on in the smaller cities and towns. Mm. Um, but it's, it's harder to find information about. And so that's why it's important for people to email the show, darkproteinpodcast at gmail.com. 
about stories that you want to hear because that are local to you because I want to hear more local stuff. If you're from Toronto and you email me about, say, the van attack, Alex Manassian, I'm well aware of that story. But I'm not aware of a lot of these smaller things or smaller town events that happen. Right, that are just as big and as important, but just didn't capture the news because it wasn't in a big place sort of thing, right? Yeah, it's yeah. really regional. The news is very regional. Yeah. And and that, I, you know, I, I scrape through a lot of regional news to try and find things, but I really do need your help, folks. So please send me more because I really do want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did have another f- person call us, but it sounded like they were calling us from like a train station or something. There was so much noise in the background. Well, she's talking about the Greyhound bus episode. Yeah. And so, we, c- we couldn't really hear what you were saying. So, but you sounded cool. So, so can you call back in again? Yeah. When you tell us the story when you, when you're at home and not in a, in when a you're Greyhound bus station. <laughs> exactly. Without a, a, a dog barking. Should we get, should we get the last caller job? Uh, Sure. What does our last caller who was traveling through Nova Scotia at the time, what does that person do? Magnetic Hill tester. Well, there you go. Magnetic Hill in New Brunswick. Yes. Yeah. So Have she, you ever been to Magnetic Hill? No, but I can remember learning about it in school. So she actually has to drive up and down the hill twice a week just to make sure the optical illusion is still there. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's an optical illusion that makes it look like your car is being pulled up a hill. Yeah, so if you put your car into roll, you're actually rolling downhill, but optically it looks like your car is rolling uphill. Yeah, it's very strange. And it's fun. Does it work? Yes, I've done it. Yeah, it's really fun. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Let's move on to the next one. Away from Magnetic Hill. Yes, away from Magnetic Hill. And thank you for doing your job at Magnetic Hill, by the way. Um, Hi, Mike and Matthew. Um... I guess I've been a two-year listener, first-time caller. Uh, My name is Phaedra. I reside in Port Coquitlam, B.C. Um, Just got here from Windsor, Ontario, where I was originally from, moved here 10 years ago. I was listening to the Empress of Ireland disaster, and I'm thinking, like, one of the reasons that we don't know about it is, to be honest, people don't really care that much about what happens in Canada, besides Canadians. It's sad, but it is definitely true. Um, considering it is like a way bigger story than Titanic. Uh, the other thing I was going to ask, being that you guys are also from BC, and I know you guys don't like getting too dark, we're going to have to talk about it at some point. So I was just wondering if we're going to have a Clifford Olson coming up or possibly a Willie Picton. Uh, those are my thoughts for today. Um, I guess you can go take a shit in that. I've actually never heard that term until I started watching us or listening to us. All right, thanks, and have a good day. Anyway, I'm not going to explain where shit in the hat. Uh, but I do. Right. I love that she just went for it. A lot of people are like poop in your tooth. She's like, go take a shit in your hat. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've already done Clifford Olson. I've written yeah. that as a chapter in a book, so I don't know if I'll be readdressing that. Um, Willie Picton. There's reasons why I haven't done that one yet, and chief of which is we like to do uh, a lot about the victims in each case. And as there are 49 plus victims, that would be a very, 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 very long episode yeah, or series of episodes. To, to give them just do, do justice of yeah. who they were as human beings. Yeah. Right? I just don't want to, if I. It'd if be we, a full year of episodes on that. A hundred percent it would. And I'm not saying that 
that doesn't deserve to happen, but maybe that's a whole other show. Yeah. You know, like there's Dark Poutines uh, presents the Willie Picton podcast or the the Victims of Picton podcast. Yeah, that's, that'd be interesting. But. I like this caller's name. Mm-hmm. Phaedra. Phaedra. Yeah. Phaedra. Yeah. Refers to, it to you know, that's like um, brightness or light. Okay. So Phaedra is like uh, radiant woman is kind of the, oh, there the translation. Go. Nice. So I think she's, I think Phaedra's a lighthouse keeper. A lighthouse keeper in Port Coquitlam. Yeah. I don't well, know. Well, it's a port. It, well, Port Coquitlam actually is where Willie Picton did his thing yeah, as and, well. And so. Phaedra was from Windsor, Ontario. Mm-hmm. So she could have been a, a lighthouse keeper uh, on the water there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so know. Thanks for keeping the water safe, Phaedra. I'm thinking though about Clifford Olson and maybe I want to redo that. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that'll be one of the redos because that was an important episode or series of episodes to me. Look at Phaedra bringing some light. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Thank funny, you. Funny how that works. Yeah. It, it's yeah. that nominative determinism again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Phaedra. Thanks, Phaedra. Okay. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Alrighty. So we have two patrons this week. And uh, the first one, we don't know where she's from, although she shares the same last, the same first name as my sister. Her name is Rachel, but I'm sure it's not my sister, Rachel. I'm, I'm fairly certain it's not her. Uh, where is Rachel from, Matthew? Where is Rachel from? Yeah. She's from a unnamed island off the coast of um, Italy. Okay. Yeah. That sounds nice. Living on an unnamed island? Yeah. She, oh, she's Does the, she own it? She's literally the only one that knows it exists. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's uncharted and unknown. Well, it's charted and known by her, and she's keeping it that way. Very good for Rachel. So yeah. what does Rachel do for a living there on that island all by herself? She, you know, gardens and fishes and stuff. Well, there you go. Yeah. Just, you know, keeping herself uh, fed and entertained. Wouldn't you love that in a way? Yes. Just away from everybody. You'd miss the internet. Uh, yeah. I keep on, like, I keep on thinking that I should take a break from it. Mm-hmm. But then I think, well, how would, what would these people do for, under for entertainment? Yeah. I kind of like it. It's fun, right? What would these people do for entertainment? <laughs> I'm sure they'd manage without us, Matthew. But Matthew gives good meme. Oh. I do give good meme. I don't know. I do give good meme. Sure. You know it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, you know it's true. I get good meme. <laughs> well, thank th you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. And uh, next we have Cynthia Wells. And Cynthia is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philly. Oh, that's the, so Philadelphia and Pennsylvania is the big Philadelphia? Yes. Okay. It is the Philadelphia. Okay. I yes. didn't know it was in Pennsylvania. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know where it was, but I didn't think Pennsylvania. Okay. Maybe I knew that, but forgot. Maybe you knew that and forgot. But what does Cynthia do there in Philadelphia, PA? What does she do in Philadelphia? Yeah. I'm not going to say cream cheese because that's way too easy yes i think she is 
from Philadelphia, but she's currently in Ottawa. Oh. And she's the U.S. ambassador to Canada. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, okay. So home base is Philadelphia. Yeah. But she's just currently ambassadoring. Yeah. She's ambassadoring Canada and mm -hmm. her reach out to us is a bit of a reach out to Canadian culture and uh, showing that Americans tip their hat to to Canadian programming and culture a little bit. There you go. Yeah, she's 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 helping us out a bit. Mm, very nice. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And we have one uh, donut money donor this week, and that person is called Danielle Alkenbrack. Danielle Alkenbrack. Alkenbrack. And she says, no donut money the last two episodes makes me super sad. Steve needs Ooh. treats. He's going to waste away. No, he's not. <laughs> Get yourselves a double-double and a butter tart on me. Matthew is right. They are superior treat. Keep up the work. Great work, Danielle. So, yeah. I, Danielle has good taste. Well, I think actually butter tarts are better too. They're so. so much better. But, yeah. You know all this stuff about double-double and Nanaimo bar is ironic, right? This is all irony. Irony. Anyway. Because Tim Hortons coffee is disgusting. It's <laughs> so gross. It gives me the shit. <laughs> you want to go shit in your hat quickly, have a Tim Hortons coffee. So where's Danielle from, Matthew? Danielle, first of all, mm -hmm. um, I want to say what she does. Okay. I think she has, I think she runs a dog rescue. Oh, that's nice. And she lives on a farm. She wants to rescue Steve from... Uh, from being starving, from see? From starving. See, Steve. there is care in that note about animals. So she runs a dog rescue. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are bulldogs. Okay. And she does this uh, just outside of Chichester in the United Kingdom. Oh, that in, sounds in, nice. In West Sussex. That sounds nice. Yes. Well, there you go. Well, thank you, Danielle. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah. Much appreciated. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode. Until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Not a bad apple. Not a bad apple. Not a bad apple. Bad apples are gross. Do not be one. Yeah.